Alex Mosed, and welcome to Winner Take All. I'm really pleased to have Jacob Helberg here with us today. Uh, Jacob just published this book, Wires of War, uh, from Simon & Schuster as the publisher. Also, things to know about Jacob. Jacob is the senior advisor at the Stanford University Center on Geopolitics and Technology. He's co-chair at the Brookings Institute China Strategy Working Group. And in a you know, somewhat recent prior life, he led Google's internal global product policy efforts to combat disinformation and foreign interference. Jacob, so great to have you with us. Thanks for joining. Thank you so much for having me. Anything I missed there on, on the bio? It's pretty impressive uh, uh, resume you got there. I think you hit all the points. Wonderful. All right. Good points. Um, so... Love the book. Love the cover. If you can see this cover, this cover is fantastic. You can't see the texture on the video probably, but it's a beautiful cover. Um, very timely topic, something we talk a lot about on the show. What do you have here on the cover? Just just describe this for everyone. I think that also covers some of what we'll be discussing, right? It's, uh, it's an eagle and a dragon that are tearing apart an electric, an electric wire. It's meant to represent you know, the book, and I've written in a foreign policy article, uh, the irreconcilable differences between the Chinese system and the American system and how that translates to um, global governance in cyberspace. And so the tearing apart of this wire is meant to represent uh, how ultimately the different visions for how cyberspace should be governed are really clashing and are fragmenting the global internet into two techno blocks. You nail so much of uh, these topics and give you know a lot of really good deep analysis in the book. And I feel like this interview probably couldn't have happened in a in a better twenty four hour period of time. Just in the past day and few hours, there are I think a couple really good examples of of doesn't get more recent recent events. I'm really highlighting some of what you talk about with this. The fact that we are in an information war, not that we will be, but that we are in it. And you tweet about one of those here. I've got your your feet up here with this uh, belt, uh, uh, basketball player right on the um, on the Celtics. Mm-hmm. And you've got this tweet here that says, what does it say about U.S.'s China policy that in 2021 criticizing China in the United States, uh, emphasis added, is an unusual act of bravery? High time for Congress to pass an outbound CFIUS framework and disentangle key industries from China. Break that down for us because there's so much in that that I love. Um, So first of all, it was an act of bravery to, uh, you know, speak out for uh, in solidarity of uh, people that are being oppressed by China and namely uh, people in in Xinjiang and uh, Ennis Cantor should be uh, applauded for that. But the point that I was making in the tweet is that we live in the United States, we don't live in China. And it shouldn't be that extraordinary to, we, we criticize our government all the time. It shouldn't be that extraordinary for our celebrities to be able to freely express themselves and speak simple truths by simply saying that uh, what the Chinese government is doing with respect to human rights atrocities in Xinjiang which do qualify as crimes against humanity, which have been recognized as acts of genocide by the US government, as well as by a number of foreign governments, that that is reprehensible, that that is awful. uh, And it shouldn't be 
that unusual for us to be able to see these things online. But unfortunately, as we've seen with uh, past events with the NBA, as well as with uh, patterns of you know, script writing and content being uh, pushed by Hollywood, that's becoming rarer and rarer. And the reason is that the seduction of and the appeal of doing business in the Chinese market has made it, you know, has created a lot of headwinds for a lot of companies to do things that infringe on China's domestic uh, censorship laws. And so, in effect, you have a situation where China is exporting its domestic censorship laws abroad, including here to the United States. And if we had an outbound safety framework, this wouldn't be happening. And so, I'm very much in favor of Congress ratifying an outbound safety framework. And I'm happy, you know, if if you find it useful to expand a little bit more on what CFIUS is and, you know, what an outbound CFIUS framework would look like. Yeah, and absolutely. I think I think one of the great examples uh, that, that we've seen CFIUS act, and you talk about it in the book, is what happened with Grindr and how CFIUS then helped to, to break up Grindr's acquisition, um, which, it, which had actually already occurred. Um, but you also bring up some really interesting points about the even though the breakup occurred and Grindr is now technically owned by a U.S. entity, it actually isn't as rosy. Would love to kind of maybe have you talk about Cepheus and 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 what you're talking about with the outbound framework and uh, and the Grindr example is just so good. So Cepheus is um, uh, a law and an int, an, an uh, intragovernmental framework that basically consists in providing the U.S. government with the ability to review on grounds of national security foreign investments into the United States. And the U.S. government has the authority uh, for national security purposes to block those investments uh, when those investments are deemed to be in areas that are too sensitive uh, for national security reasons. So, for example, examples of past investments that have been blocked include uh, investments originating from the Persian Gulf to uh, into American ports. Uh, as you point out, an example that I give in the book are uh, Chinese investments into applications that deal in sensitive user data like Grindr. Uh, they've included investments into certain facial recognition and AI systems. And so what we don't have today, so we have that framework. That framework is a good framework. It needs to be uh, you know, broadened in the sense that we are the agencies that are tasked with enforcing it should have a better capacity to enforce it in a more consistent way and on a larger scale. Right now, that framework is largely is largely voluntary, meaning companies uh, on a voluntary basis can submit something to uh, uh, for review under CFIUS. So a very, very small fraction of foreign investments into the US actually get reviewed by CFIUS. And we could imagine a scenario where American companies investing American dollars overseas, i.e. in China, uh, are also subject to similar types of reviews uh, on grounds of national security. Right, because it goes both ways. You know, uh, China or, or other just, you know, foreign actors that want to exert influence on an American company, American, American uh, in, you know, investment house could could offer up very attractive opportunities, um, and and does that ultimately pose a national security risk? There's also 
Two examples you talk about in the book, China and other you know, state actors are using technology and data to inform and shape and influence what people think and how they think. And two of those companies that you talk about in particular that might apply to this CFIUS expansion would be TikTok and Zoom. You know, how would you see the, the, what you're talking about with, you know, this expansion of CFIUS capability or oversight framework, would that play into, you know, how we would view a TikTok and a Zoom and, and their operations in the US? Yeah, absolutely. So interestingly, um, TikTok's head of public policy was just on Capitol Hill testifying. And interestingly enough, uh, as I'm sure, you know, a lot of uh, people who followed the hearings uh, noticed, is uh, TikTok testified under oath that they do not share American user data with the CCP or the Chinese government, but they do share user data with their parent entity, ByteDance, which is headquartered in Beijing, and which can then uh, share that information with the Chinese government uh, or the CCP. So it was really revealing. I mean, we didn't need to see uh, the head of public policy at TikTok say that under oath because it was already written in black and white in TikTok's privacy policies. But I think it just highlights the need for the US government to reopen the debate on what we should do with TikTok. And I'm very much in favor of uh, what I refer to as a hard divestment. That includes a CFIUS style divestment, you know, from between TikTok and its parent and its Chinese-based parent company, ByteDance. Uh, that means that ByteDance would effectively be forced to divest from TikTok. But in the case of China, one of the, the interesting uh, dynamics at work is that divestment takes two forms. There is the corporate ownership aspect, but then there is also jurisdictional control. Because of the laws that China has passed within China, the national intelligence law, um, the, the national security law, Anyone, any individual that is based in China or a company operating in China has to comply with intelligence requests and keep that compliance confidential. That means that even if TikTok is no longer owned by ByteDance, so long as they have a lot of their engineers that are based in China, those engineers are personally responsible to comply under Chinese law with intelligence requests. That means that a Chinese company may technically not own TikTok, but uh, for all intents and purposes, user data on TikTok may still be funneled out and end up in the wrong hands uh, without CEOs and, and uh, corporate executives based in the US even knowing about it because TikTok employees would have to keep that compliance confidential. That's why when we talk about divestment in the case of China, it has to be a divestment of the the parent uh, corporate divestment in terms of corporate ownership, but it also has to there also has to be a divestment in terms of jurisdictional control, and those two pieces are very important because without both of them, you don't have a true divestment. Nailed it, and now and now bring it to bring it to Zoom. Let's let's close it out and. And, and how does that then, you know, go with, with the Zoom? So Zoom is an American company that's based in the U.S., uh, but Zoom uh, is, you know, unlike TikTok that's 
uh, that's owned by ByteDance that's based in, in China. Zoom is an American company, but the problem is that they have, you know, over 700 of their engineers that are based in China. And so that is actually a classic example of, you know, there is no divestment. Um, there is no corporate divestment that would apply with Zoom. But with Zoom, what we're talking about is really a divestment from China's political influence and control over Zoom's operations. And that is the kind of divestment that we're talking about. That's why when we talk about divestment, uh, in the case of China, because of the nature, the unique nature of Chinese laws, it's really divestment takes two forms. There's cor corporate ownership and jurisdictional control. Zoom, Zoom is already an American company, so that's not an issue. The issue is jurisdictional control over the 700 engineers that are based in China and that are, you know, have an obligation to comply with Chinese laws. And obviously, Zoom being a platform uh, that has become a platform of first resort for a lot of sensitive conversations, you know, company conversations that deal in sensitive IP conversations with, uh, you know, in the early days of the pandemic, there were cabinet meetings of heads of state being held on Zoom. Um, th that data is really sensitive data, and you want to make sure that the platform you're using for these types of conversations is actually safe and secure. And so I think it would be in everyone's interest in the West to make sure that um, uh, information that travels through Zoom can't be compromised and end up in the hands of the CCP. Yeah. And, 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 and it's not like anything that you're talking about is hypothetical. I mean, this has actually already happened. We've seen abuses. We've seen this happen multiple occasions. You give great examples in the book on that and, and go much deeper. You talk about how, you know, the Chinese government could take the data of your audio and your face and then basically use AI to just impersonate you and, and have all the stuff they would need if they really wanted to go to that length, which I would completely believe. Actually, I wouldn't be surprised if they're already doing that. Um, We've also, in, in many years ago, uh, one of the co-founders of Musical.ly, which is what, what was the predecessor to TikTok, it was very funny. Um, he said, you know, if President Xi asked me for, uh, for U.S. people's information, I would tell him no. And I remember we were talking about on the show years ago when this happened, it was just laughing, right? I mean, if, if he said no to President Xi, this isn't anything against, right, the people of China. Right. The, the people of China are great, very innovative, hungry, driven individuals. This is the CCP that would go and take Zhu, lock him up, put him in a re-education camp, probably put his family somewhere around there, too. Doesn't matter if he's a billionaire or what. This has nothing to do with the people. This is just saying the people are basically a prisoner. They have no option but to comply or else. And that poses a real security threat. And. Why aren't we addressing that, like, you know, with, with the CFIA suggestion, which I think is great? Well, I'm optimistic that things are trending in the right direction. Um, I think it's important to remember that when um, there are a lot, there are a number of institutional and financial reasons why things have been very slow to move. First of all, with respect to imposing an outbound CFIA, there are a number of constraints with respect to WTO rules that obviously we are signatories to that uh, would technically prevent us from instating an outbound CFIUS. There are national security carve-outs to some of these rules that would allow us to uh, potentially have a little bit of maneuvering room to um, uh, for Congress to legislate. 
Um, but there's also a lot of money at stake. I mean, if the U.S. government starts telling companies that all of a sudden, you know, if they want to invest billions of dollars uh, in a market that was seen for many, many years as an El Dorado, uh, that is something that is going to be under a lot of corporate and uh, journalistic scrutiny, which it should. Um, but I, as I make the case in the book, I think that ultimately it's the right thing to do. And, you know, for example, BlackRock uh, recently announced uh, a massive fund that they've just opened and are now um, dedicating $100 billion into China. I think that's a mistake. This isn't a threat that's coming. This is a threat that's here. China is way out ahead of us in so many areas. You talk about the front end and the back end of this. We haven't even talked about the Huawei, the the tech, the physical tech infrastructure and all the stuff that China is doing and others, China, Russia, others, right? That's, uh, but that are doing to exert their influence over certainly their own citizens, but then more broadly around the globe. But the money thing you bring up, I think, you know, that's really hitting it on the head, which is to say a lot of the stuff kind of seems obvious, right? I mean, it's 2021. How many examples do we need to see to recognize that this is clear and present danger and we got to do something about this? And it just seems like the there are so many existing interests, whether on the on the business side, as you're talking about, on the political side, right? There's a lot of money at work here. Do you think that's the thing that's gumming it up, right? Like if if that wasn't as much of a factor, because people have embedded interests. Yeah, we've been freely investing and doing deals with China for decades. And now we're saying, whoa, we got to decouple, right? Now I agree with you, but it seems like that's kind of the, why this is moving more slowly than let's say you and I would like it. Is, is that kind of what you think is gumming this up a little bit? Yeah. And I mean, I think it's important. So there's vested interest. It's going to take time for companies to figure out how to shift their reliance on China, whether it's their reliance on uh, the demand side of the market for market revenue uh, or on the supply side of the market for supply chains how they're gonna shift that reliance uh, and diversify it across other markets. Um, obviously, supply chains are brick and mortar. It's hard to overnight move supply chains elsewhere. It, it involves finding a lot of very technical human expertise and electrical engineering and all kinds of fields that are highly specialized. And it's hard to find that human talent in certain markets. So there are some real tactical, logistical difficulties to do this. There's no question, nobody's saying that this is easy. There's no question that it's hard. The question is, is it worth putting in the effort uh, to actually get it done? And is it, wor is it important enough to prioritize it? And I think that one of the things that has really been lacking in our, in our public policy discourse, and which explains why it's been so slow, is because people still refer to the US-China contest as a competition. And fundamentally, I think that's a mistake because competitions, uh, referring to it as a competition, doesn't really highlight the fact that at the end of the day, what we're talking about and what's at stake is the survival of our political system around the world, the democratic political system around the world. China doesn't, isn't interested in peaceful coexistence. They're interested in dominating. I think she has made that very, very clear. And, you know, as Maya Angelou said, uh, so when someone tells you who they are, believe them. I think here we should start taking Xi at his word where 
he wants to unify, he wants to reunify China with Taiwan. He wants to do it. He's irrevocably committed himself to doing it um, publicly. Uh, and they're very serious about wanting to dominate every meaningful aspect of uh, the tech sector that, you know, is, is uh, our promising areas for growth, whether it's um, cutting edge areas of quantum computing, AI, you know, lower bit satellites, um, every area of tech that has any meaningful value for the future, they have uh, poured billions of dollars into uh, trying to basically position China to uh, be the number one player in that space. So the question is, you know, and nobody should blame them for wanting to compete, but what uh, where blame does lie is on the fact that they're not competing fairly. This isn't a competition. It, it's, it is what I call a war because we're not operating on rules that are mutually agreed upon and respected. They are trying to win at any and at all costs by stealing hundreds of billions of dollars in intellectual property. Um, you know, it's all rules are out the window. And, uh, and so for us, you know, we have, we share some of the blame for being too slow to respond, not, you know, seeing the situation for what it is, and not prioritizing it with the sense of urgency that it needs in order to deliver a, sex, a successful outcome. And so ultimately, in Silicon Valley, we spent a lot of time talking about first principles. And I think that's why as a matter of first principles, the nomenclature that we adopt to characterize this contest is incredibly important. And I think it actually makes a big difference whether you refer to it as a competition or a war. If it's a war, it's your number one priority. Uh, your number one objective is winning the war. You're clear about the fact that uh, you are in an adversarial relationship with someone that uh, it aims to you know, be uh, to vanquish you. And uh, you are clear-eyed about the fact that winning that war takes precedence over all other foreign and domestic policy initiatives. And so I think that's the kind of strategic clarity that we really need in order to get to a successful place. And you give a number of recommendations in the book about how to win that war. I'm not going to, not going to give away them all. You got to get the book to, to, to dig into them, but you know, like like what you were saying there about how people kind of view this as, oh, it's competition. It's, you know, capitalism, right? Like we can compete. No, no, that's not. That's not actually what's going on. And and to me, maybe maybe I'm a little bit more jaded and you're you're more optimistic than I am. But I feel like the people that that take that stance, they know it's a war, but they have vested interests in it not being considered a war and it being just, oh, competition. Right. Like. You know, how do we change that culture, right, in America where if you are a, an American company um, or an American investment firm, you mentioned Blackstone um, or, or this, um, you know, this, uh, this, this video from today with the Celtics player calling out Nike, right? Um, or if you are an American tech company, which, you know, is still trying to play nice by uh, China, or if you're a politician, right, that is not holding them, you know, responsible and really pushing to keep America's long-term best interests at heart, right? Like the, the culture starts to call you out and say, uh, no, you know, that's actually not okay. Is that what it takes to kind of have this broader cultural movement, which is building? Um, I think it is building actually amongst 
you know, more of maybe like the average American, but, but it seems like, it seems like average Americans might actually be kind of farther on the, yeah, China's, we're in a war with China yeah. as opposed to seemingly what you see out of big tech, big business, big government or not. I don't know. Is that how you're seeing it? That's kind of the feeling I'm getting. I mean, the public, according to Pew Research, over 81% of the American public on a bipartisan basis now supports uh, a much stronger principles stance on China. So we haven't seen this kind of broad-based consensus on anything in the US in a very long time. So I think you're right that the public is actually ahead of the curve, uh, farther ahead than some of our corporate elites have been. I do think that they're catching on. There is a slow awakening taking place in the tech industry, but the challenge is that for many years, it was seen as totally okay to do business in China, and it is going to take time and a lot of effort to unwind the you know, coupling and intertwinement that we've built over those years. At the end of the day, one of the reasons for which I ferociously made the case for an outbound safety framework is we cannot, as a country, expect companies whose primary mandate it is to build products people love and de- deliver value for shareholders. Their job is not to be a national security professional. It is spelled out in the preamble of our constitution that a fundamental purpose of the U.S. government is to provide for the common defense. And therefore, it is uniquely the job of the government to lay out the ground rules that frame the parameters within which it's okay for companies to do and not do business. And so I think it is the government's job to shape the culture that you were referring to, to basically say, We are in in an existential struggle with China that we have not been in uh, ever since the founding of this country because China is a much more formidable adversary than than the Soviet Union ever was. And I think the launch of the hypersonic missile, uh, you know, just uh, a few weeks ago uh, is uh, a tribute to how formidable of an adversary they are. And we are going to put in restrictions on whether and how American companies are allowed to do business here because we need to be serious about taking on this challenge. We can win it. We shouldn't be pessimistic or fatalistic about it, but we're going to have to be really serious about how we approach it. And so I think the government needs to be much clearer and not constantly vacillate in indecision and ambiguity. Yeah. And I I feel like, you know, that's a lot of the stuff you're working on, right? With Brookings and, and in, in writing the book and 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 really kind of putting a stake in the ground uh, on on a number of policy oriented things that you put in the book about what can and should be done, are there blockers that you see um, or you know real hard dependencies as you look at that journey um, politically? Right, if we're saying government needs to lead the charge here, they need to set the tone. I don't know about you. But that gives me some heartburn kind of saying, okay, government, it's time to lead the charge on, you know, really taking China um, to task. You know, that that kind of bucks the past, I don't know, multiple decades. It's bipartisan, right? This isn't a partisan thing. We've had multiple presidents, multiple parties, multiple decades of of as as kind of government policy supporting China coming onto the world stage and help right helping China is a good thing right 
globalism, all these things, right? Yeah. And now we're saying, yeah, we got to put the brakes on that big time and decouple. I, I feel like it's very easy for government to then say, well, you know, let's take the watered down approach of what Jacob is talking about, right? Like, let's let's do some of that, but, you know, let's not do all of that, right? Um, how do we get the full <laughs> the full dosage as opposed to the watered down version, which is, I, I feel like, just kind of, right? Is That's like just the process, you know, the, the dual party process. It just kind of, it's all just compromise, right? But this is one of those things where what you're saying is, can't have the compromise, right? It's got to be, um, it's got to be wholesale. You can't be half pregnant, you know. You can't be half at war. Um, our policy is necessarily needs to be based on China's policy, uh, and this is one of the the um, the points that I make in the book is China started this gray war against the U.S. They started a, an intentional concerted effort to become the the world's factory floor deindustrialize you know western markets cultivate dependency relationships between um china and its trading partners um uh allowing tacitly allowing the fabrication and export of illicit flows of fentanyl uh I, intellectual property, you know, that has been referred to by the head of Cybercom as the greatest transfer of wealth in human history. That's estimated at over three hundred billion dollars. They started all these things when we were giving them most favored nation status under W, you know, under American law. When we were uh, extending an olive branch, and George Bush, you know, famously gave a speech in the Rose Garden saying, you know, China's our friend. We, you know, when President Obama created the G two with. Uh, the 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 strategic you know dialogue between the U.S. and China to build trust to build understanding between our diploma between our diplomats and their diplomats and our security professionals and theirs. We have put in just about every possible effort to engage to have a collaborative relationship. You know, it has been a policy of the United States to encourage and welcome a peaceful rise, and fundamentally. I don't think there would be any appetite or interest in the United States to stop China, to contain China. Uh, if, you know, I think everyone would get behind a peaceful rise if China weren't so authoritarian, oppressive, and autocratic. I think fundamentally what's making everyone feel very uncomfortable at this point is the fact that uh, is the fact that China is authoritarian, repressive, and autocratic? Uh, it's a country that harbors concentration camps. It's a country that you know, at the flip of a hat, uh, cracked down on its entire tech industry and basically is sending its billionaires in uh, into you know undisclosed uh, uh, locations where they go missing. Um, and I think to a lot of people that doesn't really bode. You know, a lot of people look at that and they think, gee, I don't really want that. Uh, I don't want the future of the world to look more like that. Uh, a world where China writes the rules is not a world where American companies are going to compete on a level playing field. It's not a world where the American worker is going to is going to have a livelihood where they're going to be uh, where they're going to be able to find a job if American companies can't thrive and be successful on a global marketplace. And so I think, you know, when we think about, uh, when we think about the question, 
is there a middle of the road approach? You know, is there a watered down version? Uh, they're at war with us. And I think, you know, we can, we can choose to have a, a watered down version, but that just means that we're going to lose. And so when we think about past chapters in history, when we have faced aggressive re revisionist autocratic powers, you, you kind of have to be fairly decisive in how you respond because otherwise your response is going to be wholly ineffective altogether. And, uh, you know, the last point that I would make is, um, in, in, um, you know, in the interwar period, uh, there was obviously an enormous amount of effort to avoid a war at all costs, uh, with, you know, a rising revanchist revisionist Germany and Britain and France had just come out of world war one. And they absolutely, their number one priority was to deliver famously peace for our time. So, and, and ultimately what we saw was they had France and Germany wanted to get peace. They had all the right intentions. They were ready to negotiate. They were ready to hold international summits, but Germany saw it differently and they had their own agenda and their own vision for how they wanted uh, to run their foreign policy and what success looked like for them. And here you have a, a similar situation where I think in the US, we need to stop thinking that we are the only you know, actor in this. This is a two-way street. Uh, China has its own agenda and what we do has to necessarily be uh, uh, proportional and commensurate with what they do. If they are doing things that are highly aggressive towards us, we need to take that and uh, respond to it accordingly and not create policies that operate in a land of theory and in a vacuum as ignoring all of the various activities that the Chinese government is undertaking. Yeah, I love that. A couple of things in there I want to unpack. So I think you nailed it where we've seen their true colors, right? Not once, but multiple times over many years. COVID, if there's ever any doubt about China's true colors, just look at the past you know, series of events since COVID hit. And there it is on plain sight for the whole world to see. But that, you know, the the hope I feel like with China, you if you rewind the clock 20, I don't know, 20 plus years ago, right, was that if we bring capitalism and kind of American ways of doing business, we could change China, right? We could we could we could move them out of their bad communist ways and and help them see the light. And, you know, while um, a, a very nice um, and um, valiant uh, vision to try and accomplish with China, it's very clear that has not happened. It's not going to happen. And that vision is very much so <laughs> very out the window. So now what? And I think you've nailed it on the head in terms of the current state of affairs and what we need to do. The, the, the one area I want to touch on more in the little bit of time that we have left is I remember uh, when when my book came out a few years ago, we won we uh, we won this uh, bilingual award in China. I went to China. Last time I was there, probably last time I will be there for a very long time. Um, I just get scared. You know, I was there. It was 400 of the top uh, economic, government, academic officials. Everyone speaking Chinese. They had two interpreters basically going back to back for me all day long session. Um, and, and it was so clear. The whole room was entirely aligned, right? And they spoke about the three prongs for them to basically overcome and dominate the world, i.e. the United States. And the three prongs were the military, the economy, and technology. 
And they were so nuanced with that third bucket, how they spoke about using technology. And that's what I love about your book, really kind of unraveling how much nuance there is when you think about how to use technology in this war, um, which hopefully stays an information war and nothing kinetic, but they are so sophisticated with all of these things, three things being aligned all towards that same vision. As you pointed out, they've, they've announced what they're doing and, and they're doing it quite successfully, unfortunately. When you look at technology coming from Google and you know understanding that world so well, saying, hey, it's up to the US government to really lead the charge. You, you talk about um, the big tech companies uh, kind of like acting as sovereign states, right? I think you, I think you said like Denmark actually has an ambassador to Silicon Valley or something like that. Which at the time was seen as novel. I mean, at the time people applauded it and was like, wow, what a cool idea. More countries should do the same thing. <laughs> right. Yeah. At the time it's like, whoa, great. Um, but how do, how do we get big tech to say, you know what? I have pride of being an American company and kind of wear that with a badge of honor as opposed to kind of, uh, you know, being more of a, um, its own nation state that's saying, hey, you know, we are a citizen of the world kind of mantra. How do you change that? Is it up to government? Are there, are there things in there? I genuinely think that 90% of that truly does boil down to culture. And I think the way to shift that is, um, I mean, I was a little, you know, as someone who lived in DC for five years and was fully immersed in the Washington, you know, zeitgeist. Um, and, and then from there moved to California and the West Coast, um, I was always a little bit struck by how a lot of the culture in Silicon Valley for the better and for the worse. I mean, this has amazing side effects, but it's very, very idealistic. And so sometimes people don't totally connect the dots on and fully understand um, how their ability to build products that are instantly global, their ability to create marketplaces that operate in every corner of the world on an open and free internet is not something that is a coincidence or you know uh, emerged by happenstance. It is uh, the result of a deliberate foreign policy effort of the US to push for and promote an open and free internet around the world for many, many years and uh, dating back to the the Clinton White House. And so um, and so I think that people sometimes, in the tech industry don't totally understand how American foreign policy is actually vital for uh, for the business that they're trying to build. And I think sometimes you know they only view the American national security apparatus as this giant war machine uh, that feels you know a little bit icky and uh, politically controversial. And you know it's safer to uh, stay away from it. And so I think fundamentally, what's needed is for tech CEOs as well as policymakers to be much, much better at communicating and allow you know helping people understand um, on both sides in Washington and in Silicon Valley uh, why you know it's actually why at the end of the day we're all in this together. Uh, tech company American tech companies are not going to do well long term if uh, the U if America as a whole doesn't do well you know globally uh, around the world if American influence goes down 
uh, American tech companies are are going to have a much harder playing field, you know, oper- operating in, in several markets, uh, dealing with governments, um, and and that's just the reality. And so I think for their part, understanding that, understanding that the rest of the world views them uh, fundamentally as American companies, and they're never going to get away from that, uh, I think is critical. Understanding the fact that these are companies that are made up of employees that come from every corner of the world, which is something that should be celebrated, but which is also something that is the the direct you know result and reflection of the American system, which is you know a country of immigrants that basically uh, is based on the idea that people come from every part of the world to come here to you know fulfill their dreams and and build incredible things. Um, these are all American attributes. And so I think understanding that is really important. And conversely, I think it's incredibly important for the policymaking community to have a better understanding of Silicon Valley and the tech industry, because um, frankly, I think there are a lot of people in Silicon Valley feel easily alienated by Washington because there is a significant cultural difference between Washington and Silicon Valley. Washington is very risk averse. Silicon Valley uh, takes risks. The average age of an employee at Google or Apple is 31 and 32. The average age in the Senate is 63. Um, you know, these are people that have fundamentally that came of age through f- fundamentally different life experiences and see things very differently. And so, and you know, Washington culture does skew. Um, more, you know, slightly more ageist than uh, in Silicon Valley, and so I think better understanding the value uh, that tech companies can bring to bear to help the country solve a lot of its geopolitical challenges is kind of key for DC. Washington is not going to solve all of these geopolitical challenges with China without tech. It is tech is inseparably going to be part of the equation, and the hypersonic missile launch uh, should you know be a, a sh- shun a really bright spotlight on that. And so fundamentally, these two communities need each other, and we need to have leaders that better that are that are getting much better at articulating uh, why that is, and you know why there needs to be uh, why we need to move to a paradigm where people. In, in the tech industry and the policymaking community embrace each other much more. I think you nailed it on the head to kind of say, yeah, you know what? You have employees from all around the globe and, and here is why we should all be proud that we're an American company, right? And really start to embrace that and, 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 and communicate that, right? And I'm sure all the employees not from the United States, right, are, are, are hopefully pretty, you know, excited about what this country stands for and, and, and how these companies, uh, you know, surprise, surprise, the five largest companies in the world are these American tech companies, right? It's kind of a pretty cool thing, right? And it was funny when you talked about it in the book where, you know, of course, it's the two tech companies when, when asked in that congressional uh, hearing, it's the two tech companies, um, Apple and Google that have Although Apple way more than Google, um, you know, have some kind of uh, monetary business dependency on China when they said, hey, so so uh, has China committed any, you know, IP theft? And um, and Sundar and Satya say, oh, well, I don't know. Nothing I know. Right. Playing dumb. I mean, come on, guys. Like, really? And then Zuckerberg, who has no dependencies, as you call out in the book, says, 
yeah, they steal stuff all the time. What are you guys talking about? And then they backtrack. I think Sundar and Satya say, oh, oh, yeah, 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 you're right. I, I think I remember something now. I mean, I think that's exactly what you're getting at, which is you can't even answer the most basic question that, yeah, China steals stuff all the time. Like, what? And by the way, I think we should be, and you know, this actually... Um, this is a great, you know, way to circle back to the point where this conversation initially started, which is that in the US, we should be able to openly criticize the Chinese government. I mean, this shouldn't be something that is that crazy or unusual. Or you don't have to take design by Apple in California made in China. It's gone. I couldn't believe it. I looked at the phone. It's gone. I mean, it's just, you know, these things which seem small, but these are very big deals. And it starts at the top. And then just like you're saying, you know, DC needs to set the example. The tech leaders need to set the example. What are we doing? Let's get moving. Like we're all, they're all, they're all way smarter than us, right? They can see this. I love that you've put this out there, that you've drawn a line in the sand, that you're calling attention to it. What makes you happy and optimistic when you go to sleep at night, given all the seemingly bad and not so good things we've been talking about on today's show? What makes me optimistic are two things. The first is um, I'm always encouraged and inspired by the incredible ingenuity and creativity that a lot of technology founders are proving every day, um, solving a lot of really hard engineering problems. You know, back in the early to mid 2010s, I think in the tech industry, there was a lot of talk about how some of the tech's best talent was focused on solving problems that were fundamentally somewhat trivial for society. You know, it was as Peter Thiel used to often comment, it was about throwing uh, angry birds at pigs. Uh, and, you know, it was about building apps that weren't really that valuable for, for, for our country. Today, what we're seeing is that there are actually a lot of founders and there are billions of dollars in venture capital resources that are actually getting invested in companies solving really, really interesting engineering problems. Space is a booming industry. Um, there are you know, everything in biomedical sciences, uh, life extension, really interesting uh, problems and, and gutsy challenges that are being undertaken by tech founders. So that's number one. Number two... Uh, what the other thing that makes me very optimistic for the country is that I think that fundamentally, unlike a lot of people that are fatalistic and pessimistic about America's prospects and winning the gray war, I actually, um, I don't think that we should take anything for granted. But the reason that I think that we can win is because I think that this isn't a, a, a contest or a struggle between two countries, the US and China. At the end of the day, it's a struggle between ideas. And it's a struggle between democracy and autocracy. And so, you know, I think the US, from an ideas standpoint, is much better positioned to win that battle than the Chinese government because the US has the better ideas. I think the idea of democracy is something that fundamentally has universal appeal. And that's not me saying that. You can see that by looking at a map and seeing that you have democracies in every corner of the globe, in Asia and parts of Africa and Latin America and Europe. And so it's an idea that appeals to basic human instincts. And fundamentally, you see the cracks in autocracy by the simple fact that Xi Jinping talks a tough game 
And, you know, he showcases himself in front of the world surrounded by planes, missiles, you know, masses of armed soldiers. But this is a guy that is afraid of a mouse of thought, a mouse of free thought and words. And he goes through extraordinary lengths to censor uh, people's words and thoughts. And so, um, and so I think that is something that we should, uh, you know, feel very optimistic about. Jacob, thank you so much for joining us. The book is Wires of War. Really pleasure talking to you today. Wish you the best. Wish the book the success, you know, all the best. Uh, Everyone needs to go read this. Have a great day, Jacob. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Hi, I'm Alex. Thanks for watching the show. Make sure to hit that subscribe button, but even better, make sure to follow us on Odyssey, follow us on Rumble, and text us 203-646-5159. Text the word Monopoly. You'll be subscribed. You'll get updates about when we're going live, our latest videos, and we'll send you even a little goodie bag. And in the event that we all get banned from big tech, we'll still be connected.